folks. Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773's Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Please go to your website. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And uh, it's, it's an honor to bring back a, a dear friend of the program and a guy who, <clears throat> one of my earliest guests back in 2011, uh, he's always been a big supporter of mine and he's also channeled a lot of of inclusivity and also uh, leadership through rhythm. Um, he is uh, from the, uh, originally from uh, the great country of Canada and uh, also was part of the uh, LA studio scene and was also part of uh, the great Bay Area music scene and now uh, resides in Chicago, a town that he's uh, still learning about and, and figuring out and uh, what an honor. Pete Magadini, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Oh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jake. It's uh, always uh, uh, great to be back at uh, Jake Feinberg's show, and um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. I want you to listen to this voice, but more importantly, I want you to listen to the content, and uh, then we'll come back and talk about it, okay? All right. Bye. Well, I think that started, and what's called the Toronto Sound today is very heavily steeped in R&B. And the reason for that was back in the 60s, there was a Chitlin circuit. If you were a black band from Detroit or Chicago, you played in a black club on the black side of town. And a lot of those artists soon discovered there was no color bar in Canada. And they could come up here and play in any of the clubs. We had a, an area called the Young Street Strip which was maybe 15, 18 bars right down the, the main street of Toronto. And you could go down there on a Saturday night and you could see B.B. King playing in one club and the Four Tops in another and uh, the Muddy Waters band from Chicago. And so we grew up steeped in that music, not because we had a Chitlin circuit up here, but because we didn't. <laughs> and the black artists could come up here and play anywhere they wanted. And England was very much the same. So a lot of the great R&B artists spent most of the rest of their lives in either England or Canada because there was no color bar here. And uh, not only were they accepted up here, they were idolized. Uh, I would sit at the bar nursing a beer for an hour just to watch an hour of the Muddy Waters Band, <laughs> you know, or Albert King or B.B. King or Otis Rush or any of these guys. They all played in Toronto. And there was a club up here called the Blue Note, which was an after-hours club, which meant that it, it didn't open till 1 o'clock in the morning when all the bars closed. And all the artists used to get together and jam until dawn in this place. And it would be nothing to find yourself, uh, you know, on stage with Martha Reeves or, uh, or, or you know, singing with uh, any one of a dozen great R&B artists. That used to... All right, Mr. Magadine, do you have any idea who that is? Uh, well, no, not really, but uh, I need to tell you something. Yeah. Uh, I'm not from Canada. I, I didn't get to Canada until 1972, 70, uh, 1970 I got to Canada. Okay, so you... I'm from... Yeah, go ahead. Hmm? I'm from Massachusetts. Well, I, I mean, that's the great state of Massachusetts. <laughs> All right, so I, I, for some reason I thought that when you're... Uh, 
when you were in LA and your daughter needed medical care, you moved back to Toronto, and that was where you where you were from. But that, my apologies for that. In any event, um, did Pete Magadine? I don't know who that is. So that, you know, that, by, that? by the way, that was David Clayton Thomas from my interview with him back a, about March oh, of last year. Yeah, uh, yeah right. Can you talk about? Um, any experiences you had in Massachusetts or on the East Coast playing with rhythm and blues bands? One of the revelations to me, Pete, is that Charlie Neville, Albert Tootie Heath, Coltrane, Sonny, uh, Rollins, and, and the list goes on and on. Those cats didn't start playing bebop. They started playing R- with R&B. And so the blues was deeply rooted in the music that they played when they did transition towards bebop or post-bop and i wanted you to talk a little bit about the experiences you had playing with uh with blues cats absolutely well you know first of all i should just uh, um bring you up to date on on how uh, my career matriculated from massachusetts to california when i was a kid to la where i started listening to johnny otis mm-hmm. johnny otis had a had a, uh, you probably have heard about the Johnny Otis show that was on television in the, uh, in Los Angeles in the fifties. And he had all the blues singers on. And that, that show was, uh, it was on once a week. I think it was an hour. He had his own band and he brought in these, these guests, big Joe Turner. And, uh, 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 uh I don't know if he had muddy waters, but he had some of the biggest blues stars. And, and during that period, also, I started listening a lot to Chuck Berry, but I was only in junior high school. My parents moved to Arizona, and in Arizona, I actually started playing professionally. And there, I started playing with some blues artists, not so much as uh, blues artists as more rock legends. I played with the Coasters wow. when I was in Arizona. Wow. And they, every time they came through, they used me. Uh, and and the certain rhythm section uh, of, uh, of of some of those guys who lived there, and uh, I played with uh, some local artists around there. Prince Shell, who was uh, maybe the most legendary uh, uh, jazz blues pianist in Arizona, and there you are in Ari- living in Arizona. But there's that history, especially in Phoenix, wow. of what was going on in the '60s. Uh, and, uh, and for me, it would have been the uh, early '60s before I moved to New York. The, can you just so talk? Can you talk? Ab- no, this is so important. So, how do you spell it? What was his name French Shell? What, what's his name? Prince. Prince. P R I N. Yeah, the, it, most people spell it P R I N C E, but uh, it was really P R I N T Z. Prince. Prince. But he was known as Prince. And that was his first. His first name was really Prince with a Z, but everybody spelled it and pronounced it Prince with a C E. Can you just talk Shell. about like 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 how the blues and the jazz were right alongside each other at that time, and how uh, you incorporated that into your playing? Well. You know, I was just out of high school, and I was playing in clubs as, um, I just started playing jazz, but I was playing a lot 
of uh, I was I was involved in some studio work at at Ramsey Studio in uh, Phoenix, and they were recording um, what they were they were trying to do the same thing as the uh, rhythm sections were doing in L.A. Except these producers, Lester Sill and Lee Hazelwood, were coming down to Phoenix to record, and uh, I was doing some some studio work at the time. And then going out at night in Arizona and playing jazz with some of the locals. And Phoenix at that time was very segregated. There was the South Side, which was the black area, and and the North Side, which is practically from the tracks downtown north, would be the less segregated side, if you want to say that. And I spent a lot of time down on the South Side because I had some friends who took me down there to, uh, you know, to hang out at first. Uh, to, and there was a Chitlin circuit there. And I heard Ray Charles when I was about uh, maybe 17 years old playing at the Calderon Ballroom, which was a big, big facility that uh, brought in people like, and Ray Charles was, he had just had his, he had an octet and they had just had a hit with What I Say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, tell your ma, tell your pa. And uh, the Raylettes were there, and the uh, they played the whole night, and people listened and danced. And this was on the south side. And there was everything in Phoenix was going on on the south side, as far as I was concerned. All the jazz clubs and all the things that I was interested in was happening there. So when I left Phoenix uh, in 19... 19- 60. I went to New York City, and uh, that's where I got a chance to actually start hanging out at Birdland and then hanging out at clubs where a lot of the well-known people played. And I actually went down a couple times to the Apollo Theater and heard those shows. And uh, one afternoon I heard Jackie Wilson, the Coasters, um, Ray Charles Band, Philly Joe Jones Quartet, a movie, and then uh, <laughs> and then the Jazz Cat, I think was the uh, was it Art Farmer's Band? Uh, yeah, right. Unbelievable! And, that, that's uh, a smorgasbord of music right there. Yeah, for two dollars, <laughs> two dollars, something like that. So um, yeah, so in New York was a. Uh, was pretty happening and then I went back to uh, uh then I went to San Francisco after that. So did you find that's how I got Yeah, no, did you did you find your it's I just did my second interview with Steve Swallow and he was talking about um you know Jimmy Jufri um was playing pretty straight and then he had this sort of road to Damascus moment and began this trio of free music with Paul Blay and and Steve and then of course you had Scotty LaFaro, Paul Motion, um, and you had these trios going on at that time. Did you have a, a gig in New York when you were there that, and where you were playing conversational? As far as I'm concerned, that was some of the most incredible. That was the original voice. That was the original time when the bass became sort of a, 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 a lead voice as well as just a, a, a bass. Um, uh, uh, an instrument that would just you know keep yeah. lock the groove and did yeah. you did you play in any of those You're kinds right. 
kinds of groups? Well, you know, I I I uh, I, I had. I was a kid from Arizona. I was 19 when I got to New York. Wow. And, uh, wow. I did, I did find a gig playing with the two Italian guys in a bar in the Bronx where I lived. The Bronx was a uh, Jewish area at that time. And, uh, there was some clubs out there and I did get a, I did get a gig. I was just happy to have a gig in New York. Uh, you know, playing in New York was no matter where you were playing. I was in playing in New York. I was, it, that was exciting. But, I went out and heard a lot of those guys, but uh, as far as a player who uh, was playing with any of those guys, I I wasn't there yet. I was just mainly studying and woodshedding and practicing and hanging out, you know, but uh, I got to hear and hang out with a lot of the great players and uh, in in a lot of those legendary clubs at at the time. Because when I left New York, I was 21 years old, and then I went out to... uh, San Francisco, and then became a part of that scene <clears throat> more than. Uh, but I have to say that when I went to Canada, which was 1970, when I went up there, uh, I went up there to. Uh, yeah, to, they had health care, and my, my my first wife was Canadian, and I had a I had a kind of a free pass if I wanted to go to Canada, and I knew some of the musicians there, so I, I went up there and. Uh, I got busy kind of right away, and uh, and there was a, some clubs there that brought in people from everywhere in the states. And while I was up there, I did play with. Uh, I played uh, uh, two weeks with Chet Baker. I, I did two gigs with uh, two different gigs with Sonny Stitt. Uh, I played two different gigs with um, uh, the uh, Zoot Sims and. Um, uh, let's see. There's Mark Murphy. I played with him oh, both wow. there and in Jeez. New York. This is the hot, and that's such a uh, hot. I played t- with Michelle Legrand twice while I was up there. I played with Johnny O'Neill a bunch of times. Uh, Paul Desmond. I played with him for one week while I was there. Uh, you know, they were bringing all these cats up there, and I was getting a chance to play with them. That, uh, and they were coming from the West Coast and the East Coast. Uh, they weren't just from. Uh, you know, it wasn't just like New York cats, but it was New York cats and L.A. cats mainly, and maybe some Chicago guys thrown in. But uh, there was uh, quite a array of really um, well-known musicians. Uh, Don Ellis, uh, yeah, uh, Herb Ellis, rather. I played with Don Ellis in Los Angeles. Sure. Herb Ellis. And uh, who else? Um uh, I played with Jimmy Witherspoon. Now, there's another blues guy I played with, but I played with him in San Francisco. And uh, I played with uh, Slide Hampton in uh, Toronto. I played with uh, Al Cohen in Toronto. I played with uh, Maxine Sullivan in Toronto. Dakota State, and I played two jazz festivals with her uh, in Canada. So Canada offered a lot of, uh, not only did they have their own musicians, some, you know, great players in their own right that you wound up playing with, but also they brought in people and local rhythm sections got got a chance to play with some of these uh, high-powered uh, 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 jazz stars, you know, jazz legends. Did you did you notice, and, I mean, it was it was still, I mean, even going back to what, uh, David Clayton said, um, those cats still felt more comfortable. I mean, there was no segregation. I know that we, quote-unquote, had all these civil rights passages and 
you know, we end quote unquote had desegregation, but I mean, we still haven't really been able to uh, mend that fence in this country. I mean, those cats enjoyed it was there. There was still no color bar. Still isn't a color bar in Canada. You know, the, all that that David Clayton Thomas was talking about. I, I, I didn't experience any of that. I, I didn't. I don't know any 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 bit of a part of that uh, scene in Canada. He was talking about sixties, and uh, yeah. I, it was very different by the time I got there. But you knew from, so, but I mean, you, you, oh, so it was different, but I mean, even going back to here, you saw, you knew that just from your experiences with the South side of Phoenix, it was very segregated. Um, uh, so, th- I mean, this country really did it. It was just a pipeline for, I mean, John Lee Hooker brought David Clayton to New York. I mean, that, that, that to me is like a, a, an astounding thing that you had these, you know, these original masters of the music, you know, coming up there and uh, being completely accepted and then. You know, ultimately bringing these cats into the states. Um, um, you know, Pete, um, we we came in with um, you and Don just going back. You know, playing just horn and drums. Uh, that was on the back end of Sama Day Rollins on your Polyrhythms album, and I I was hoping you could just talk to the audience about how to keep time. In that kind of setting, I mean, you were sp- locked in. You were doing it, I assume, live. And, you know, because, I mean, there would be, I mean, I've talked to guys like John Densmore who, you know, they'd go to Shelley's Manhole and McCoy and Jimmy Garrison would leave the stage and Elvin and Train would just go at it for, an, you know, 40 minutes. Um, did you have an, an experience like that? We're not just playing, but when you were at going to Birdland or, in New York, or even when you moved to uh, to the West Coast, when you saw this call and response between, you know, a melodic instrument and a rhythm instrument. Well, you know, that's interesting that you asked that. Um, one day, in one afternoon, uh, my wife and I were at the jazz workshop in uh, San Francisco. Uh, it must have been around... Uh, 1967, 68, something like that. And uh, we were listening to John Coltrane's um, quartet with Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison and McCoy Tyner, except uh, Elvin wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, he's been known to miss sets and not show up. Yeah, so he... Elvin was a no-show. Well, it was a beautiful day in San Francisco, and, and here was, you know, they've been playing, you know, those guys played six nights a week, three shows. Uh, I don't think they did two or three shows, but, man, they, they, it was like, they was like working in the coal mines as far as the energy <laughs> they put out, you know, every night. So I, could, I hardly blame them for, you know, kind of just wanting to take the afternoon off. But it was dark in the club, but all of a sudden, uh, you heard, uh, we were sitting up by the bandstand. You could sit right next to the bandstand. I was on the side so I could get a good shot of Elvin. And, and I, I could can Coltrane a drink if I wanted to. I mean, I was that close. And uh, we heard this car door. It was, the workshop was a long rectangular club, and the car door slammed out in front. And Elvin came in, and he was mumbling under his breath, and he had a, 
a white sweater tied around his uh, neck like he had been out playing tennis or something. <laughs> and walked through the side of the club opposite to where his drums were. And around the back of the bandstand, there was a wall at the back of the bandstand. So he had to walk around the wall. And he came out. And John Coltrane had been playing ballads. And so we were all like in this mood of, you know, can you imagine you sitting in a club in the afternoon, this quiet afternoon in San Francisco, listening to John Coltrane play ballads? I mean, how, how it couldn't get better than no, that. No, right? no, no. The club was mesmerized. Everybody was just into it. You know, he had taken us out in this ballad world, and we were... Everybody was, you know, if, if, if you heard a, a clink in a glass, it was too loud, you know. And Elvin got behind the drums. He sat down. He picked up both sticks in his right hand, and he hit the crash cymbal as hard as he possibly could. Wham! And the place went dead dead quiet i mean it was already quiet but i mean even the musicians stopped they stopped and he went he stopped and then he went and he started this groove this infectious elven groove that was like it was like a rocket ship had just taken off <laughs> right in front of your eyes and close rain didn't even turn around he just started Playing and they got into uh, some kind of a modal tune that they had played before, and they and they they all started blowing on this thing, and and the tempo was really faster than what I had sang, and they started cooking on this thing, and it went on for about ten minutes, and then the guys, uh, Reggie uh, uh, McCoy Tyner just got up and left. He so it was just the bass player and Coltrane and Elvin, and the bass player hung in there for about another 10 minutes, and he left. So this has been going on for, like, let's say 15 minutes. And then Col it was just Coltrane and Elvin for another 15 minutes. Oh, my God. And uh, oh. that's the first time I heard that, like, I was like, well, that's that's something, you know. <laughs> that that that's happening, and uh, so when I got with Don, I knew Don was uh, uh, he loved Sonny Rollins, and I I had heard this album with Sonny Rollins and Elvin where they did that as well. Uh, it was just Sonny Rollins and Elvin and Wilford Ware. They saw live at the Village Gate. Wow, I've never heard Village of that. Vanguard. I I I yeah, I'm more familiar with like. I forget who was drumming, but it was like Cranshaw on bass and Sonny on horn. But I, I, I got to look that. So live at the Village Gate is Elvin and, and Sonny. I think it's a Village Vanguard. Sonny Vill Rollins live at the Village Vanguard. I, I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. Yeah, I get it. It's uh, Sonny Rollins, Elvin Jones, and Wilbur Ware. And on on and, uh, on an, a couple of tracks, uh, there's the uh, drummer. Um, and, uh, think of him. He's a, he's also a lawyer. He's a, quite a good drummer from that period. That was Pete LaRocca. Pete LaRocca, thank you. My God, yeah. Sonny and Elvin Wilbur at Greenwich Village Vanguard, 57. 1957. Yeah, check that out. <laughs> check that album out. That, that is, that's a classic. So that's another place where I sort of heard that dialogue between horn and, uh, 
and drums. So, so that's how I, you know I brought it up to Don on, on at the session. I said, and then I'd like to do how about just we stretch out because that's his tune, somebody Rollins. He wrote that tune, and I said, why don't you and I just stretch out for a while and play on it, and then you know then I'd like to take a, a solo, a polyrhythmic solo. Uh, after that and that'll be the polyrhythm trip on this uh, on this tune so yeah that's uh i mean uh, do, do you do you uh, stepping back from it now um I, I think it would be impossible to walk out of that sunshine afternoon at the at the workshop and not be introspective after seeing spiritual music like that and <clears throat> Um, I'm not saying it was dance music, but I'm, I am saying that it was, you, you had to be deeply contemplative after that kind of stuff. And, um, I just, my question is Pete, you know, over time, how have we moved from music, melodic improvisation, uh, music, melodically improvised music that is, that is burning like this Sonny, Sonny Rollins album or Train or any of that stuff, to the point now where, you know, you go to a gig, <clears throat> you go to see a show, and either the music is meant for background noise or people, if it's a more formal event, people just sit and stare at somebody's facility. There's no spontaneity. Obviously, you know, there's a, it's a profession. You know, I mean, Elvin came in halfway through the set, and then all of a sudden... Two other cats just leave the bandstand. There's no hemming and hawing. They go at it. I mean, it was unfiltered. It was it wasn't unprofessional. But how have we gotten to this point where we've gone from burning, burning, burning music where, you know, it just you had to walk away, either humbled, um, ready to give up because someone just overwhelmed you, be if you were a musician, to the point now where People just stare at people's facility and uh, and maybe not off. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I don't think it's a whole lot different now than maybe it was back then, as far as what to expect from an audience. Uh, they'll fool you sometimes and be totally into something. You think they'll never that it's way over their head, and 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 sometimes when you're you think you're playing with a band that probably is more. Uh, has more of the capacity to play to a larger spectrum of what a general audience might be into, you know, they, they ignore it. So, uh, I, I think that, I think musicians are, are always trying to, you know, let me put it this way. It's always great if the audience is, is into what you're doing. And, uh, and if, if it's something, of course, like, like I was just talking about where, where it's John Coltrane and, and Elvin Jones, uh, I mean, why would you be there otherwise, you know, if you didn't specifically go there to hear those guys play at that level? Uh, that's why the clubs were always, you know, they, you'd think the musicians of that caliber would be playing larger venues, but, you know, that's what they could muster was like a, a, a room full of people, maybe, maybe 150 or 200 people. Uh, out of a whole city are into that place every night to hear Miles or uh, or uh, you know uh, Sonny Rollins or, or 
in those days. And and these days, too, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I, I played with John Handy. Uh, just before I left San Francisco, I did a concert with John Handy. Mm-hmm. And we shared the bandstand with Robert Glasper. Sure. And we played first, and then it came on, and I, I, and I made sure to stick around. I want to hear his concert. And uh, I was amazed at how... Uh, how much music Rod, uh, Robert Glasper's band could play. And he said to this audience, because it, um, it was sponsored by a black organization in Oakland, and, and Robert Glasper said, well, you know, I don't always play this concert for every audience, but I'm playing this concert for this audience. And they played some stuff that um, was definitely uh, right. Uh, you, I, could, I could hear the progression of where where he had come from uh, and all the roots that he has spoken about that has influenced his playing would come out with his band. And, and it, would, it would include polymetric stuff. And it would include backbeat, like funky grooves. I like funky grooves. I, I, you know, I was a Motown drummer for a while. I, I toured with Diana Ross, and uh, they didn't get me on that gig because they wanted me to play jazz. No, you know? no, uh, no. You wanted, you, you wanted to you had to feel really good. It, it, yeah, it was all about, you know, and uh, and it was a lot of that playing came from my days, again, back in Phoenix, just playing with some of those artists who lived on the south side, you know, and just laying it down. And uh, I, I like to hear bands who can do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes I'll sit there like the rest of the audience and go, I, I hope this guy doesn't play another two choruses because I think I've heard everything he has to say, you know. Right. Right. I'm talking more about the idea of, <clears throat> I was, um, about um, feel. In, in, you know, the, the feel is important. And, and okay. your generation, okay. see, okay, maybe the workshop only brought in 150 people that day. But, you know, it was, uh, you had everything going on in Hate Street. You had everything going on in the Fillmore District. You had uh, Dawn Sessions. Uh, it was... You had yeah. 25 of those clubs, and that to me is how how you get to feel the music is by playing live relentlessly. So I guess more to the point, I'm saying uh, Denny Sywell, I just did an interview with him, and he, he was talking about going to this drum clinic with Ndugu. I told you this story where Ndugu, rest in peace, he... There was a younger drummer up, and you know his facility was just huge chops, and... And after about 25 minutes, Saiwo looked over and, and Dugu was passed out because there was no feel. It was just like a lot of facility. I see that with my generation. I wonder how you talk to younger cats about feel over chops. Well, you know, I'm a guy who wrote books on polyrhythms, and that's, that's what I tell. I said, you know, if you want to study something that's going to improve your feel, you should study polyrhythms because, uh, I mean, first of all, you need to have some kind of feel anyway. Right, I mean, right. You, you know, you, if, if that's not, if you don't have that, uh, you shouldn't be really playing music, I, I think. I dig, know, I dig. You can hear it in every, any, anybody's playing, you know. I, I mean, some of, some of Elvin's solos, uh, you know, that you, could, you could almost play a backbeat to them, you know, and, and they're so out. But they're so in at the same time. There's so much. There's so much depth, you know. So I think that I think that we should always constantly be working on on the depth of our feel. And and 
I would say this. I used this example. I said, okay, listen, if you're in a car and you're driving at night and the headlights are only on the white line in the middle of the road, you're sort of obligated to just follow that line. You don't have much choice because you don't, you don't know what's on the other side of the light. But if you fan the lights out across the whole highway and see that on the left you have three or four lanes that you could go in, and on the right you have three or four lanes that you could go in, doesn't it make driving down the middle a lot more comfortable? And that's what polyrhythms do. You study those other lines. You, you bring into focus those other rhythmic parameters that are there. And then you actually explore going into them. And then when you're playing down the middle, hey, the middle is so much more illuminated than it ever was. And the depth that you feel is so much deeper than it ever was. You know, and it, it comes from the Africans in our music, you know. And, and that's that's where it started, so... I bring it all the way back. You know, I learned something about African drumming, and I, I make my guys learn a little bit about some basic A-way African uh, bell patterns. Just to there's the root right there. You know, get that down because that's that's where it all started. So, you know, I, I think I agree with you. I, I think if you don't have a, a lot of feel in your playing, um, the rest of it is, uh, doesn't count. Talking to Pete Magadini here live on Power Talk on the Jake Feinberg Show. Um, uh, this is uh, this was kind of a trip. Um, I, I uh, had an opportunity to uh, speak to Jim Messina from uh, Buffalo Springfield and um, and also uh, Poco, and uh, <clears throat> he said, that "I want I want to I want to read you this this story uh, about so and then get get let you extrapolate on it." He said. Um, I said once to Milt Holland, this is from Messina, I said once to Milt Holland, I'm having such a hard time with time. I don't know sometimes if I'm rushing. He said, Jimmy, you got to look at time kind of like driving a car. I said, what do you mean? He said, imagine the steering wheel was sitting out there on the front bumper. You were driving a car and you're looking down at the double line. You're driving along. Do you think you could stay on the road easier if you were up front where you could really see the road? or if the steering wheel was really back in the trunk, actually looking over the car. I said, well, I, I would think sitting right up front where I could really see it. He said, that's fine until there's a curve. If you don't see the curve coming, you'll fall off the road. He said, if you're standing on the back of the car and you're looking down the road and you can see it's going to turn, you know you're going to, be, you're going to go to the left and you're not going to go off the road. Holland said, you've got to look at time that way. Time is coming at you. You're not moving with it. It's coming at you. Let it come to you. Don't try to go to it. Um, after he said that to me, I suddenly got a whole new perspective. He was talking more about Latin rhythms in that sense as well. But I wanted you to, what do you think of that analogy? And, and you can just riff on that any way you want. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm essentially he's saying the same thing. You know, uh, it's, it's uh, how about this? How, me, how, how about how about I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking more you're in it, you know. I'm not thinking so much it's coming at you that that you're in it, mm -hmm. it's more like you're in a wave, and uh, you know, you're you're you need to control your part of it. I suppose uh, a guy on a surfboard is kind of uh, the same thing. Right. I mean, he's he's dealing with time right then and there, you know, the time he has. Uh, to remain on this surfboard in 
relationship to the wave he's riding, which is also in time. So they're both dealing with time, and he has to be in control of what he's doing, but he also has to understand what the wave's doing, you know. And I think in that regard, uh, uh, Jim Messina and myself are kind of on the same page. Well, no, but, but did, you, did, uh, you, did you know... I think did, all those yeah. analogies... Mm-hmm. No, it was just, he, he was, I mean, Messina was talking, the dude who was telling him that was Milt Holland. Did you know Milt at all? I did not know him. Yeah, so he, I mean, this is a you know, major, like with Larry Bunker and those guys, like from that generation, percussionist, drummer. Um, <clears throat> and um, I just kind of wanted you to talk about. Um, uh, By the way, I learned a lot from Latin players. Uh, yeah, t- t- tell me about tell, tell me about the, the that one and two and it was easy. Tell me about what you learned from them. Well, you know, I I, I spent some time studying uh, timbales when I was in uh, in San Francisco, and uh, I studied with my friend who was the uh, also played with Cal Jader when Willie Bobo couldn't make the gig. Uh, my friend Eddie Calderon was the timbale player with Cal Jader. Wow. In the wow. in the uh, middle sixties, with and, with uh, with with, uh, with Armando or yeah, and Armando that band that's exactly right. Wow. And uh, Willie Bobo was uh, his Timbali teacher, so uh, I was really studying what he learned from Willie Bobo, and so I learned a lot of the bell patterns and uh, and the techniques on Timbali's, not on drum set. You know, drum set and Latin music came later. It used to be timbales and conga drum and uh, and the related accessory instruments that some of the singers play, clave or shaker and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so there was a lot of Latin clubs, too, in, uh, in the Bay Area before uh, before there was rock clubs. There was jazz clubs and, uh, and Latin clubs, and so... The Latin clubs were happening too, and, and I just want to say that the Latin players were way ahead of the curve when it came to playing polyrhythmically than uh, than maybe some of the jazz players were. <laughs> in what in, in what I, way, in I, what I, way? Just the, jazz players. Hmm? In what way? Yeah, I was, uh, it, it, one thing about Latin players uh, is they're playing uh, strict rhythms based on clave, where uh, jazz players aren't you know, thinking so much about uh, clave as much as just about the grooves they're in and, and, and how, how, you know, how deep can they make them, you know. Uh, even guys who don't, aren't, you know, even guys who are known not to be necessarily uh, play a lot of uh, tumbling drums like Elvin might play, but still play with a deep groove. Uh, I, I love Albert Heath playing, you know, just because he plays with such a great feel. You know, I always loved his playing, and uh, I loved Shelly Mann's playing for that. And uh, you know, it it doesn't like it doesn't have it doesn't have to be a lot of chops to to, to impress me. It's it's all about what kind of feel that that you have. And uh, and a lot of Latin players in their bands, of course, it, it's all about feel because they're playing uh, they're playing dance numbers which uh, are also the basis for their, uh, you know, when you go to Cuba, uh, it's funny, they're playing Latin rhythms, but the guys are improvising on top of the Latin rhythms in some of the bands, and they call those jazz bands. Right. They call it jazz bands because of the guys improvising, 
not because of the rhythm section is not playing jazz as we know it. They're playing Latin. So, uh, you know, it, the concept of jazz to, to them in Cuba from what, when I was there, what I could gather was that, uh, you know, you're still based on Latin grooves or Afro-Cuban grooves, but the musicians were stretching out over these grooves and improvising in a jazz way. So these bands were actually called jazz bands where they were playing jazz, you know. And and they, they were, but they were playing jazz within the framework of these, you know, strict Latin rhythms or Afro-Cuban rhythms, which are very heavy in their own right. I mean, if you take them one step further, you're, you're in the, in into African grooves. Absolutely. Know, so. I mean, Al McKibben used to say that that was, uh, those rhythms were the closest thing to Africa. Um uh, Absolutely right. The, Absolutely did you go right. to Caesars a lot? The Latin club, the Caesar Escarunas. Who was running the? What was the Latin circuit? Because I mean, I know you didn't just go to San Francisco and wind up, you know, finding George Duke right away. I mean, I, I have to believe you were playing a bunch of different gigs. Did you play at, at Caesars, or did they had these boat concerts and saw Salito with Victor Pantoa? Paul Jackson said he learned everything. He learned time from those guys. It's really funny. Uh, when I was in San Francisco, I, I played mainly jazz and mainly with George Duke. And uh, and I played at Jimbo's Bop City. I played that gig for a while, and uh, and I played uh, shows at the Playboy Club. And I was also the house drummer at the Hungry Eye just before it closed. It went to Giardelli Square, and then it closed over there. But I, I had that gig, and that's sort of what drove me to L.A., because uh, some of the work was drying up in San Francisco. And when I went to L.A., oddly enough, I wound up playing with some of the Latin guys in Los Angeles. Which ones? And, uh, uh, well, there's a guy, I wish you could think of the name of his band. He had a band. It was myself and Lynn Blessing. And uh, Lynn Blessing? Are you kidding me? Yeah, he has Lynn left us way too, he left us way too soon, man. Yeah, uh, no kidding. G a a total Gene Stone G vibes player. Oh, a great player. And uh, she was Lynn Blessing and Art. Um, uh, I'll think of the guitar yeah. player's name. Yeah. But we were playing around, and we had uh, a Latin set we played, and we brought in, uh, he he always had a local uh, conga drummer who would be featured with the band, and then we'd do a Latin set with him. And uh, so all that experience I had, from San Francisco, studying uh, with Eddie Calderon, uh, learning Willie Bobo, uh, uh, Timbali uh, uh, techniques, uh, I applied to the drum set in Los Angeles, and because uh, because the, they needed a drummer, but they needed a drummer who could play Latin, so uh, I kind of fit the bill, and uh, so I got a chance to play, and I played at Juanita's, which was a uh, a Latin club strictly, uh, and we played with that band, and we had Latin dancers, and I was a little nervous to think that, uh, ah, now I'm playing for Latin dan dancers. I hope it's going to be go down all right. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's going to at me, so I guess I did okay. Did you, did you, uh, did Magadini get over to North Beach and play for Carol Dota at all or anything, or was it always just sort of the... I mean, I mean, like, like there was a place called the Red Balloon out there. Bob City, obviously, was you know that was. Were you in the house band at Bob City? 
I was. Was was Frank Jackson? Yeah, because there was another cat that I just interviewed. He's ninety two, and he was played with Pony Poindexter there, named Frank Jackson, piano player. Actually, I'm a, I, I, and the name sounds familiar. Yeah, well, I mean, he's I'm, so Flip Nunez. Hold on, the the house band at Bob City was you, Flip Nunez, and who else? Uh, Rex Thompson on bass. He's no longer with. So it was just a trio. Yeah. Right. And and Flip time. might play organ once in a while too. I uh, never played organ, just just piano. Wow. A really great piano player though. Singer too, Legendary. great singer, great singer. Yeah, you're right. You're right. A really good singer. That's right. He was a really great singer. Actually, Michael Howell told me that um, <clears throat> Flip could just. Sta- I played with Michael too in San Francisco. Michael said that with Flip, if you were playing a gig, he could just stare at the audience for twenty minutes, and people could be entertained. <laughs> He would what? Sorry, I missed that. No, he said Flip was such a character that he could just stare and smile at the audience for 20 minutes and people would just be having a ball. He was such a character. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was a beautiful guy. Yeah, everybody wanted to know. So, yeah. so um, can you just talk a little bit about um, this upcoming clinic that you, uh, you're in Chicago now, but I really want you to talk about this. I want to promote this um this this uh, I got an email. That was the reason I reached out to you. Is uh, you have a, a, a something coming up, and I just want you to tell the audience about it and what it's going to be about. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, so uh, on uh, March twenty fifth, uh, I've been asked by the uh, one of the major drum shops here in uh, Chicago, uh, Bix Drum Shop on Luna Street. Uh, it's quite if you ever been in Chicago and been to Vic's drum shop, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's like a a retail museum. Uh, I mean, it's huge. And uh, anyway, they invited me to do a clinic, uh, and I'm I'm doing a clinic on my specialty, uh, which is polyrhythms. I generally don't always give this clinic just on polyrhythms, but this one I'm 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 doing it just on polyrhythms. And uh, my books are 50 years old uh, this year. And, uh, wow! So, congratulations, uh, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. That's awesome. And uh, I still get to talk about them, and I still get to show people how it works. You know, so if you want to find out about, if you don't have to be a drummer to come to this this particular clinic. Uh, it's on uh, March 25th, uh, 6 p.m. at Dick's Drum Shop here in Chicago, and uh, it should be. It uh, should be pretty good. And for the price of admission, uh, the first 50 people who get there get a free uh, polyrhythm book. Musician's Guide to Polyrhythms uh, will be uh, uh, given out free for the first 50 participants. So uh, You know, I want to ask you a question. This is really important because there's, I, I don't, I, I get, I mean, whatever you might read, and you know I have the the Jake Feinberg Smithsonian thing going on on Facebook, but I mean, I actually don't listen to a huge array of music, especially if I'm in the car. One of the CDs I have is Polyrhythms by P. Magadini. I, I want to ask you, though, I mean, you were a, a tabla student at the Ali Akbar Khan College of Music. <clears throat> Sometimes when I listen to Polyrhythms, though, you're playing the traps. <clears throat> it, it, it almost sounds like it's impossible that you didn't overdub a couple of things. And I wanted you to talk about how to play Polyrhythms if in fact you did overdub anything, but also how to translate polyrhythms from its, you know, indigenous, from the tablas 
and the other Indian percussion to the trap set. Because I, I mean, my, I, I become a much more proficient timekeeper since the last time we really caught a hang. Um, I'm not professional by any means, but um, can you talk about how to how the two are different? Because I mean, you know, you know, the the, the tabla stuff that makes the polyrhythms there. How do you how does that translate onto the drums? Well, um, it doesn't very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's how that's, yeah, yeah. that's how the book came about. <laughs> right, 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 um, right, right, right. You know, um, I, I, I was just fortunate to be in this class with uh, Mahapurush Misra, who had come from India with Ali Akbar Khan. He was Ali, Ali Akbar Khan's tabla player, uh, drummer, you know, and... Uh, he was the teacher of the tabla class, and I had never been with someone who was proficient on a percussion instrument as, as he was. Uh, and uh, what he could play, uh, most of us would just sit there and marvel at it, and probably not, none of us in the class, at, at least, I can't speak for the other guys, but for myself, even though I'd been studied percussionist and the drummer for a while um what he was doing rhythmically was way beyond me i mean i just what the heck you know uh you play one composition and and stack two more different rhythmic compositions on top of that and um you know he'd know where he was all the time and in his head he would be keeping the first rhythm he started with and he had playing all these other new polyrhythmic uh difficult cycled compositions on top of that and uh but fortunately he let me stay after class and bring my drum pad and 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 uh he explained to me how some of the time ratios worked and uh and that i understood because that that was pretty logical and pretty simple but you know if you're playing in four four and then you go you know if you go one two three four and then you go one two three four one two three four you double it that's twice as fast. Well, that's a time ratio of two to one. Well, in between that four and twice as fast, there's also three other time ratios. There's five, six, and seven. So three, four, five, six, seven, and eight were all these time ratios. He explained to me they all had titles. And, and he could play in all of these and improvise in all of these as comfortably as he could just the four, four or the one to one time ratio. He was comfortable in all of them. And I, I thought to myself, well, if we had a method where we could take our notation and get us into these time ratios, then we wouldn't learn about how to play these difficult Indian compositions because we'd have to be an Indian musician to do that. We'd have to learn how to play the tabla and learn all about their music. That's a lifetime's of work. Right. But we could we could understand these time ratios and and drummers like Elvin and some of the, and Philly Joe and Max, and, and some of these guys were already playing in these time ratios. If they, if they knew it or not, it didn't matter. <laughs> they were right, they didn't, they didn't. They were, they were there, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, 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 but some of us, I felt, had to learn about how to fall into them. You know, we had to sort of dig them out first, and then we could fall into them, you know, so. That's how the books came about. But that applies to all musicians. Uh, you know, if you study this stuff uh, for a little while, you find that it's not, it's not complicated. It's pretty simple. And it makes you a better musician. 
that's that was the chief idea of, of writing the writing the methods and uh, you know there's a lot of contra you know there's a lot of fiction out there about these things as being some kind of nebulous uh, uh, theoretical hypothetical rhythmic uh, uh, questions that that I'm looking at for answers but they're not hypothetical they're 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 real you know it's just like just like C E and G of a chord that's real stuff the same thing applies to rhythm especially time ratios or polymeters so yeah but so there is something it, about my, the, yeah there is something about the um <clears throat> I remember uh, John B Williams the great bass player told me he was on a with Benny uh, Benny Carter uh, uh, on a world tour in the seventies, I think Earl Palmer was on drums and and he went and bought a sitar in uh, Pakistan, and he was just searching for a book. He was searching for some kind of book on how to learn the instrument. And exactly, you know, he yeah. said he said he where, couldn't where find one, right? he couldn't find one because they said it's all teacher to student. It's all passed down from teacher to student. It's it's the same way in the motherland of Africa. When the Europeans went over there, it drove them nuts because they couldn't notate something that they were playing. Um, so so that that that's the. I mean, that's probably the bridge you've had to 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 the gap you've had to bridge is just this idea of sort of putting into quantify quantifiable, meaningful data terms, data points. Uh, a language in music that is more uh, from passed down from from father to son or teacher to student. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I mean, the, the the music is uh, that's right. In Indian music, it's 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 all syllables, and uh, and it's passed down from teacher to student. That's right. That's pretty much how it goes. Of course, now nowadays with the recordings and. and you know, you don't have to have the teacher right there. You, could, you can go on YouTube and find that teacher if you want, and uh, and learn uh, learn something about it. But you know, you mentioned something that, that is interesting. You said bass players. Uh, you know, I've played with some great bass players, and I've noticed that the great bass players they know more about chord changes than sometimes the piano players do. And yet they just play one note, right? Right. But, you know, you ever hear a bass player talking to a piano player and say, now, what did you play there? Did you play a flat five? Or <laughs> is that a, you know, it, it on what what note did you use? Did you play, what inversion did you play? Did you play the ninth on the top? Or, you know, they want to know all about the inner workings of this chord that the piano player might play on a chord change. And yet the bass player is just playing one note. But those guys are the great bass players are hearing all the notes, and that's pretty much what I'm talking about with polyrhythms. You know, you might be playing just the one rhythm, but you're hearing everything around it. And bass players they hear one note of a change, but the good ones they hear the whole chord, and they hear every note in it, and they even know they even want to know how you're inverting. You know, what inversion you're using, or what alternate chord you might be playing there. You know, they have huge and, ears. Uh, I mean, Alex Blake told me because he he grew up playing with Patato, the bass player. Uh, Alex Blake, he came and uh, 
potato and and all these Latin percussionists. So they, you know, the timbal in, in Latin music, you, you know, that's sort of the bass player is supposed to follow. Yeah. Supposed to follow that, right? And Alex Blake said he'd follow it for about four bars, and then he'd go out and experiment. And the drummers were like, "Can't you just play it straight, man?" But he couldn't because he was hearing all the stuff all around him from that indigenous percussion. Uh, interesting. Really interesting stuff. I mean, um, how, what what is the most important thing to convey to to the cat, to younger cats at this at this clinic about how um, about just about rhythm in general? What what do you what, what would be the the best thing that you in your mind that you could get across to these cats? Um, that that they could walk out and 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 do some deep introspection or just be enlightened and and inspired. Well, generally in, in a clinic like this, uh, most of the time, uh, most people don't understand the difference between a polyrhythm and a polymeter. So uh, we talk about the five basic polymeters: three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And once once I just talk about the first simple one, which is six. The most simple one is double time, which I just told you about twice as fast, two to one. And the next one is the one in the middle, six, six over four. And we explore that for a while, and then I say, you know, this, these same principles will apply to all these other polymeters. Because once you have a polymeter, then you understand how the polyrhythms work within that polymeter. But what they'll go away with, hopefully, is that the, just the basic knowledge of this first one, six, and how important it is to our music because it relate again it relates to African more than Indian. Although my influence for this this book was from the Indians and 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 what they could do rhythmically, I, I wanted to be able to do a little bit. But uh, talking about feel and and the polyrhythms that we understand and where jazz came from and New Orleans music and Afro-Cuban and everything else is from West Africa. And I explore some of those rhythms at the polyrhythm clinic. So if you leave there with going, hey, I know more about African and six over four than I ever knew before. Um, and I'm going to go home and practice some of this stuff because I can see the value in it. Then I think I've had a successful day. I just want before I let you go. I wanted to, you to talk about, um, uh, you know, we, you connected me with. Um, well, no, you actually, Lee Charlton connected me with Bryce Rohde, Um and rest in peace. And then, but the cat that is, and I think he's still with us, but he was such a character, uh, and such a badass player. I just want I'd like you to talk about. Give me a tell me a good Peter Appleyard story. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I have some fantastic uh, albums. By the way, I also have this 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 sort of I have a, a, at least one Apple Yard album with you and Dave Young on it. I also have this Welcome to Canada LP with Pete Magadini oh. on drums. It's weird. It is it's awesome. It's so it is so bizarre. I mean, it's like, you know, Canadian Nash just a bunch of Canadian tunes, but what? yeah. Yeah, uh, it's not called Welcome to Canada, though. It, it, it's uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's like a Toronto. Yeah, a Toronto. It, it's the word Toronto. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like anytime yeah. you find Magadini on a session, you got to grab that album. 
But no, Apple <laughs> Apple Yard was a serious. I mean, the guy goes way back. I mean, just tell tell me a little bit about. Give me a good Apple Yard story as we wrap set two here. Well, uh, two things. One thing uh, before before I let you go during the during the period of uh, all these periods we're talking about, I was always playing with Mo's house. I was playing with him during the early days in the Haight Ashbury days in San Francisco, all the way up to the last gig I did with him at the Blue Note in Tokyo in 2012. Right on. So. A big, a big influence on my life because Mose Allison was a really terrific piano player. Uh, he could rhythmically, he could do a lot of stuff that nobody else I ever heard play as much as as he did. And and polyrhythmically, he was a master at it. We never even talked about it. He was just the way he played. But uh, Mose Allison was an important artist that I played with for a long time, and I produced his last album, as a matter of fact. But, uh, Mose Allison live in California, which is which is out. You can get it on uh, on Amazon.com. Oh, very cool. But um, yeah, uh, Peter Appleyard, a, a vibes player from England, who wound up living in Toronto, and uh, would call me from time to time to play his gigs. And uh, you know, he played with Benny Goodman for a long time uh, in Benny Goodman's later years. And Peter was a uh, Really terrific musician and uh, kind of a character. Uh, hired good musicians all the time. I always liked to play with him because uh, he always had uh, players that I wouldn't normally play with. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, you throw him right into that. Sh- throw right into that gumbo. You know. Yeah, he'd he'd have. That's right. He just put guys together. Uh, one year he called me to do this jazz festival. And it was uh, Bucky Pizzarelli was a guitar player. Oh man! And uh, it was uh, leftover guys who were still alive who played with Benny Goodman. And uh, wow. they had the original. We played Sing, 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 and they gave me the original part to read. And I thought that was pretty cool. Only with Peter Appleyard would I get the original <laughs> drum part for Sing, Sing, Sing to read at this jazz festival in Canada. Uh, which was uh, so he, he really came out. He it, we're talking about big band or Benny Goodman small combo. We're talking about big band, right? Uh, big band, yeah, yeah, yeah. But both, you know, some of his small combo things. I think we played some of his music too. But but he didn't play Benny Goodman music very often. But in this particular concert, it was because uh, every, everybody except myself that was uh, featured guests on the concert were uh, had played with Benny Goodman at some time or other. I just uh, want to read that. I mean, this is the most badass. I mean, this album that I have is from 77. Uh, Appleyard's playing everything. You're playing, you're listed as playing percussion, but you want to talk about all the Chicago, uh, the Toronto cat, Dave Young, Bernie Sineski, Mo Kaufman, Ed Bickert, uh, Rob McConnell. I mean, it's just, it is a funky, I mean, it is an amazing, kind of insane album. You know what was hard about that album? It was direct to disc. That means You're that right you had that. to do one complete side without a mistake, because if anybody had a problem, uh, you know, they would, they would uh, burn the acetate as they were uh, doing the album. So in other words... The master, you were burning the master as you were doing the album because we're talking about LPs now. So, 
they wanted a clean sound. They didn't want to have tape sound anymore. So they burned directly onto the acetate that printed the, the albums after that. And so they'd have to do a complete side. So when you got through with the track, they bring the pods down and they let the two or three seconds go by. They bring the pods back up and then you're in track two. So you have to do that whole side without a mistake. And if somebody, if there's an error, technically or musically, you have to go back to the beginning. <laughs> Not unlike tape where you could just, you know, pick it up at that track. You'd have to start over from square one. So there's a lot of pressure on those uh, on those recordings. Toronto guys were good at that. They, oh man, you know, see, so, yeah, because I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I've inter- since we last talked. I mean, I've interviewed Sineski and uh, Thompson and Terry Clark. I freaking love these guys. I mean, you know, this is like uh, it just feeds me the whole time, Magadini. And um, well, let's just let's let's do another interview uh, uh, later on in eighteen, so I can get a, an understanding of how you're dissecting the uh, the urban jungle of Chicago. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm hearing some great young musicians playing here in Chicago, some great young musicians, both, both white and black. And uh, I'm planning to do an album that's going to be called Pete Magadini in Chicago, and I'm going to use some of these young guys before they're totally famous because they're going to be, and I wouldn't be able to afford them otherwise. But maybe now, while they're still young, I can entice them to do an album, and, uh, and I'll let you know when that's done, and we can talk about that. Well, I just also want to say, I don't think Pete Magadini ever got into music for fame and fortune. That's one of my problems with uh, younger cats today. It's like, what are your intentions, you know? Um, I, I, I mean, when they're, you say they're going to get too big, and yeah, maybe they'll get to a point where they're just rocking a professional life and music, which is great. But I think that's also part of the problem that my daughters are growing up with and is that none of you guys got into music to be rich or famous, you got into music to make good music and that's what it's about. And, 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 and any, any real serious grounded cat knows that. So yeah, when that CD comes out, let's hit again. Sounds good. Jake, thanks so much. Yeah. I love you, Mags. Keep swinging, man. Talk to you soon. Can continue your great work. Uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful that you're doing this with so many sidemen. Yeah, we all appreciate. Well, David Clayton Thomas is not a sideman, so you know we're we're trying to we're, tr- we're trying to keep building up too. I mean, we're we're going here. <laughs> we're on our way. Hey, one of my students was his drummer for a long time. Paul DeLong in Toronto was uh, played with David Clayton Thomas. So wow, went full circle. Love you, Maggie. Yeah. yeah, man, have a great and listen. Hey, good luck at that. Good luck at the clinic too. I mean, all the best. He's great to hang. Okay, thanks very much. Later on. Bye. Bye. Dear friend of the program and Hall of Fame drummer Pete Magadini. Um, that's a wrap for the Jake Feinberg Show. Um, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a couple of more guests, Karen Stackpole and Mala Waldron. Uh, until then, we'll pick up my interview with George Clinton P-Funk. Until then, peace. By the 70s, uh, you know, Steely Dan and cats like that were getting half a million dollars. to. They were in the studio all day trying to perfect a song, but... I mean, I get the impression with, with these demos that you were cranking out from the Brill Building, you didn't have that much time. Can you put us inside there to talk about how you got through it and not just that, but the music came out very high quality? Well, we were, like I said, we were doing demos for, for Motown at the time and Joe Bett. We was cutting songs because Joe Bett was such a hot publisher. Everybody wanted a Joe Bett song. So we got, you know, 
songs, pushed, did demos on Motown songs and new songs from songwriters on the East Coast. So that was we did that all day, every day. We had writers in there, and they would give us a session. We can do three of our songs in the evening. Um, George Kerr, who became head of Sylvia Robinson's label, uh, <laughs> he was our boss, Sidney Barnes, who become the lead singer of Rotary Connection, him and Minnie Ripperton. Wow. All, all of us was kids at that time. 